Unfiltered by Jade. Jade. Welcome to the Unfiltered by Jade, where we get out of the box and dive into topics that are sidelined. I look forward to entertain, educate, and inspire. Feel free to like, share, subscribe, donate, and make everybody know about it. Beats by RB Records. Shopping assistance, your style, your budget. Our services include online and local shopping for individuals and businesses, personal shopping, purchasing of company and office supplies, importing and exporting small packages across Jamaica and worldwide, and helping you find unique gifts and items for all events and occasions. Contact us at 876-919-5195 or shoppingassistance2015 at gmail.com. Shopping Assistance, your style, your budget. Welcome back to the Unfiltered by Jade. Today we have here with us Dr. Marty Lerner, and he's here to talk to us about eating disorders, um, whereas binge eating and pica. So I'm going to read and I'm going to introduce Dr. Lerner to you before we get into it. So Dr. Lerner is a licensed and board certified clinical psychologist who has specialized in the treatment of eating disorders since 1980s. He has appeared on many national television and radio programs, just to name a few. 2020 Discovery Health, ABC's Nightline, and more. He has authored several publications related to eating disorders in professional literature, natural magazines, newspapers, including USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and more. Hi, Dr. Lerner. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great, and how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm eager to uh, speak to your audience. Yes, and I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll they'll be excited to learn about these things. So, I want to first ask you, what are eating disorders? Right. Well, that that can be a very simple question to answer, or a very complex one. I'll try something a little bit in the middle. Okay. But basically, the work that I'm involved in, um, both treating eating disorders and the research uh, uh, behind all of that, has to do with mostly things that people have become familiar with, like anorexia nervosa, uh, bulimia, um, uh, binge eating disorder, something that I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, which is food addiction and uh, uh, pica which is more of a rare form, uh, uh, a little bit of an outlier that I don't treat a lot of, but is a little bit different uh, than the others I mentioned. And just so that uh, for the sake of clarity, I'll define uh, or describe loosely what each of these different disorders is, sure. so that it'll provide a foundation for our, our little chat. But basically, uh, some of you may or may not be familiar with the term anorexia nervosa, but basically it's more of a uh, disorder in which someone 
takes dieting to the extreme. And it's, it's characterized by an endless pursuit uh, of losing weight and restricting caloric intake and or compensatory behaviors like, like exercise or sometimes by self-inducing uh, vomiting uh, or taking purgatives, uh, uh, laxatives, diuretics, so on and so forth. But basically anorexia is the relentless pursuit of thinness and in the throes of anorexia for most people um, it's never enough so there's also inherent in this disorder a disordered or dis distorted sense of how you look so to the outside world you may look like you're starving and emaciated or too thin and from your perception you are looking at yourself as being too fat mm. so it's it's an enigma to understand why that is but that is the main broad stroke of understanding that bulimia is a little bit different in that someone need not be underweight or overweight they can be normal weight um, or they can be um, uh, either over or under but it's characterized by binge eating or, or eating an inordinate amount of food uh, to the point of being almost in pain mm. and then using compensatory behavior, mostly it's self-inducing vomiting, but it can also be restricting the next day um, or it can be using purgatives like laxatives or diuretics or it can also be trying to compensate by compulsive exercise. So I label bulimia or describe it as a feast or famine type of syndrome. Anorexia is a famine type of syndrome. Mm -hmm. And binge eating is bulimia without the purging or compensatory behavior. Pica is an outlier and maybe should be a separate conversation. It's an eating disorder that was grouped with all of these, although I think it should be a separate group in which a person eats, usually kids, but it can be an adult, uh, things that are not usually considered foods, like uh, paint, paint chips, um, uh, dirt. Ice, dirt, clay, powder, paper, um, and it can go the whole gamut. So um, uh, we don't know exactly what causes this, but people that tend to have this may have uh, the cause being neurological or hormonal. Uh, or uh, uh, autism, or <clears throat> something we call Prader-Willi, or a genetic uh, condition, schizophrenia, so on and so forth. So there may be physical and psychiatric reasons for this, but it's basically eating things that have no nutritional value and that none of us would consider food. So that runs the broad stroke of eating disorders in terms of describing this to um, to those that are listening. Okay. So since since you, you gave us a definition for, for all of them, and even for PICA in terms of this, um, I asked this question because you see, well, I've seen persons who are pregnant and they tend to eat these weird things because that's what they're feeling for. Yes. The pickles and ice cream syndrome. Yes. <laughs> 
those weird things. So when I see like people eating baby powder, or they're eating, I don't know, they're, they're continuously want ice when they're, and I'm talking specifically to like when they're pregnant. Yeah, or, or it could be that they want, I've heard some people eating like raw rice. Yes. Well, here's what we're, we're talking about. The body has its own wisdom. Um, so um, the body can tell its own story without us intellectually having a language to understand why it has certain needs. And so when you're talking about pregnancy, or if we were talking about diabetes, or we were talking about uh, another metabolic-related condition, the body might be craving some type of mineral um, or some kind of substance that either food is not providing enough of, or that someone has a craving for that would be out of the ordinary. For instance, uh, if you bear with me, when they've done research with children that are three, four, and five, and gave them what we call ad lib or unstructured access to whatever food they wanted to eat in kind of a cafeteria setting, initially they would choose ice cream and candy and sugar and things that would be normal for kids. But after a while, they would start to eat in accord with what their body needed. So when you look at this, uh, extrapolating from that, if someone were pregnant, um, there's a hormonal component, but there's also um, the possibility of some deficiencies that are arising uh, as a result of the pregnancy to feed the fetus or, or the embryo. And what's happening in that situation is it can manifest itself in cravings. And those mm-hmm. cravings can, can, can be odd to someone who isn't experiencing them. So when I say pickles and ice cream, I'm looking at salt and I'm looking at sugar. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know, because this is beyond my scope of experience, whether that includes things like clay or soil or paper. Ice might have something to do with the cold or it may have something to do with the fluid component or the need to chew or the texture. But it's really the body having its own language and manifesting itself in a craving. Mm, Interesting. Very interesting. What is the difference with food addiction and eating disorders? Yeah. In my world, um, my background, uh, you know, is in treating uh, addictions. Uh, which can be uh, substances that we're all familiar with, alcohol, uh, uh, opiates, um, uh, cocaine, etc. But what we have found in the research and over time is that there are some people that have uh, a substance use problem with um, sugar and flour and some highly processed food groups. And although that doesn't account for all people with eating disorders, as I said in the beginning, those that suffer with binge eating or bulimia or some forms of anorexia, there is a tendency for a subgroup of people with either an eating disorder or standalone issue with compulsive overeating that become uh, or acquire a craving and an addictive relationship with some food substances. 
there's the nature of the substance and the nature of the person. Uh-huh. So if you'll bear with me, and I just use a broad stroke to define what an addiction is or describe it, um, what I would be saying is that not all people who drink alcohol and not all people who imbibe in recreational drugs become addicted. Right. But there is a subset of people where the nature of the person, uh, because of the duration or intensity or frequency of, a, of use, the use becomes abuse and becomes dependency. And there may be a genetic predisposition towards this, or it may be acquired, but nonetheless, there's a tipping point where there becomes a physical need where there once was a physical want. Mm, okay. So, so if you take 100 people uh, that are drinking uh, in college or, you know, binge drinking at a beer cake party or whatever, not all of them are going to become alcoholics. They outgrow it or they could take it or leave it. But 10% roughly of that group will develop alcohol use disorder or dependency. Well, likewise, if you take um, uh, 10-year-olds or 15-year-olds or 20-year-olds or whatever, and they're uh, exposed to highly processed foods that are mostly sugar or highly processed flour products, cereal, um, uh, candy, um, junk food, McDonald's, etc., a percentage of those people, like alcoholics, um, will have a predisposition either that is hardwired um, predisposition or will acquire it, the symptom of which is overeating and obesity, but the cause is addiction. Oh, okay. That's that's a very basic um, uh, explanation. so what I want to add to that is that not all people that drink become alcoholics. Right. And likewise, not all people that use or overuse sugar and flour and highly processed foods develop food addiction. However, there are people that are what I call duly uh, diagnosed who develop bulimia or some forms of anorexia or binge eating that have emotional components to their overeating that drives it, but also have the substance use piece or proclivity or sensitivity to the sugar and flour. So they are both food addicted and bulimic or food addicted and anorectic or food addicted and binge eaters. So I don't mean to confuse your audience, but you can be bulimic and food addicted, or you could be food addicted and not Okay. I'm, tr- I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. <laughs> okay. I know, I know. I know it gets a little bit confusing, but I would separate out the cause and, and what drives an eating disorder uh, from what drives uh, or could drive food addiction. So food addiction usually manifests itself in binge eating. Um, and then for some people, and binge eating and then trying to compensate for the weight gain by using, you know, behaviors, right. Um, And some people are emotional eaters and it's not the sugar and flour necessarily that they're addicted to, but just the volume of food that they eat 
in order to self-medicate because they're anxious or they're depressed. That's what I was getting to because I wanted to know for persons that binge in for for persons that binge eat, right. is it is if it's always a disorder? Because that that's that's the point I was gonna get to in terms of people who just love food. Is it a disorder that they have or persons who because I've seen some people with some plates and they go back for more and for them it's just I love food. While yeah. I see other persons yeah. eating because they're depressed. Yeah. Um yeah. So it's for different reasons. So is it that they have a disorder or it may just be an emotional thing that they're going through for some people? Right. So let me let me see if I can answer that. Um, and I'll make the parallel because it might be easier to understand with the difference between a social drinker, a heavy social drinker, and an alcoholic. Okay. So now this can get a little confusing. There are some heavy social drinkers that drink more than an alcoholic, but they're not alcoholic, yes. And the reason it delineates between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic, even though you're measuring it by how much they drink and how often they drink, is what happens to them when they do drink. Let me explain. A heavy social drinker may or may not be an alcoholic, but what what differentiates them is they're drinking because they want to, not because they have to. Okay, okay, okay. I get that. I get okay. that. In, in addiction, you're, you're driven to do something in the end stage of addiction, not necessarily because you want to, but because you've lost the power of choice or control. Okay, I see that. Now, with food, it's very simple so, uh, and very similar. There are lots of people that love food. I don't know many people that don't love food. <laughs> I love food. Yeah, I do too. You know, and and going back for seconds or thirds may not be frequent, but you know, we've all we've all done that. Yes, we have. All. You know, we're not eating disordered, but when someone does that, despite the taste of the food, they're not even tasting it. They're doing it out of habit, or they're doing it for reasons other than pleasure. Then. They're doing it not because they want to do it, but they may be having the experience of almost watching themselves as if they were in a movie where they're involved in this compulsive overeating or loss of control. And they're thinking at the same time, I don't want to be doing this, but I'm still doing it. Okay. All right. Can I give you an example of how this would work? I remember when uh, my mom put me on a school bus when I was five years old. I didn't get off till I was 33. So, um, uh, yeah, I know. Um, I was terrified of making a living, but that's another story for another podcast. Anyway, um, I remember being in school and, you know, when you're in college, um, uh, you go out drinking and, you know, you're single, you're, you know, 20 or 18 or 22. And I had a friend um, who would um, have, you know, like a beer or two, and then we would go out and he'd have... um, another beer or two, and then he'd stop for the evening. And and I was a little bit more on the compulsive end of things. And so I would have a beer or five before we'd go out. I say a beer or five. I'd have, I'd have more than two beers, let's just say, when we went out. And I remember asking him, how come you stop 
you know, at two beers when we're out. You know, I don't understand that. How come you leave over half a glass of wine when someone says your table's ready? Or I don't understand why a girl breaks up with you and you don't stalk her, you know. (laughs) So he said to me with the drinking, he said, I start to feel uncomfortable after a certain amount of food or alcohol or whatever, because I start to feel like I'm losing control. Oh, okay, okay. And and I related to that by saying, oh my God, I may have a problem because the more I drink or the more I, you fill in the blank, the more in control I feel. Mm, that was it. It's okay. Yeah. So when you're talking about that, you're talking about someone that uses or enjoys a substance, food, alcohol, what have you. And then you talk about someone that can abuse it or overuse it. And then in the third stage, you talk about somebody that is dependent upon it. So in the initial stages of addiction, I know I'm deviating from this, but it's true. Addiction. In the beginning stage, it works and it feels good. You're enjoying it. Yes. In the middle stage, it doesn't feel as good, but you're kind of hoping you can go back to stage one, but it's still worth it. In the end stage of addiction, you're doing it not because you want to do it. It's just that you feel so uncomfortable when you're not doing it. It's it's almost like substance abuse. (laughs) It is substance abuse. So in in the category of food addiction, as I'm defining it, it is a substance abuse issue. So let me read a statement from the American Psychiatric Association that I helped author. Um, there's a committee in the American Psychiatric Association uh, called ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. So let me just read their statement about addiction, but let's apply this to food addiction if you want binge eating um, or compulsive overeating. Okay. And even if you want, you can apply it to, to PICA. Okay. So I'm going to translate it. So instead of the word addiction, I'm going to use eating disorder or food addiction. Okay. Okay. So I'll just say an eating disorder or food addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. I'll translate this in a minute. People with an eating disorder use food or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. Prevention efforts and treatment approaches for eating disorders are generally as successful as those for other chronic diseases or addictions. Uh So what this is saying is like anything else that's an addiction, an eating disorder, for the most part, has three components to it. It has a physiological, genetic, or biological component. It has a psychological or emotional component to it. Um, And it also has an environmental or setting component to it. The perfect storm is when you have all three of these ingredients coming at the same time, you have the makings of an addiction. So someone who has a genetic predisposition towards alcohol dependency may not have developed it, but they're 25 and they're going through a divorce. 
So there's the emotional storm, mm-hmm. there's the biological predisposition, and there's the setting where they have uh, uh, access to alcohol, and now you have a perfect storm. So it, it, it helps them to go through something. This is how yeah. they become addicted to it. Yeah. Um, so again, I don't mean to complicate this, but what I would say is there's a difference to bring this in a little bit. There's a difference between enjoying food or enjoying alcohol and despite the moral issues, imbibing occasionally on recreational drugs without getting into the political or moral right. issues with that. But you can cross a line where you're controlling food and weight or you're controlling how you feel with alcohol or how you you know, enjoy X, Y, or Z and you're controlling it and you wake up one morning and unbeknownst to you, you find out that it's controlling you. Uh-huh. Which is why I use the language of wanting to go back for seconds and thirds and needing to go back for seconds and thirds. Well, you're getting fearful for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm learning. Well, I'm learning. we're doing this during lunchtime. I mean, this could be very hard. <laughs> conferences and talks like this, they always schedule me either right at lunch or, or right at dinner. And, uh, I get very upset. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh Lord. Um, what are the emotional and biological factors? That oh, yeah. Let me give you a, a vignette. Um, growing up, uh, my mother, when she was upset, she'd be straightening out the dishes or she'd be cleaning or she'd be busy. And if it were dinner time, she would say, I'm too anxious, too nervous, too angry, too upset to eat. So most people or a majority of people emotionally, and I can give you a neurological and biological reason for this, but it's not important. When people are upset or agitated, their appetite diminishes. Yes. But when someone has an addiction to food or they have an eating disorder other than anorexia, an overeating disorder, they'll usually say, I'm too upset not to eat. Mm. So a lot of people when they're depressed or anxious will self-medicate with food just like a lot of people will self-medicate with alcohol or marijuana or opiates or any number of substances uh-huh. or behaviors like gambling or sex or relationships or work. So if you think of these disorders as misguided attempts to self-medicate or control feelings, you'll get an understanding of how emotions can play a role in prompting us to do things that in the beginning make us feel better, but in the end don't work anymore, but we're already in the throes of compulsively doing them. Yeah. What are some of the mechanisms of eating disorder? Yeah. um, At the risk of giving anybody who might have the propensity towards an eating disorder uh, lessons in disordered eating, (laughs) I'll say uh, (laughs) chewing it. Tune out your radio. Or, 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 or. For this part. 
uh, I'm, not, I'm not giving you tricks of the trade. Um, huh. um, people do very crazy things, just like with Pica, in some sense, meaning that they they resort to extremes. I'll give you some outlying examples. Um, I've had patients in our residential program here uh, in Florida who come in who never smoked before, never smoked cigarettes before, and they either start smoking or chew Nicorette gum. And the reason they do that is because they feel that the nicotine will speed up, which it does a little bit, their metabolism and will diminish their appetite. Mm. Yeah. So so they, they I call it switching chairs on the Titanic because they trade off one addiction for another. Uh, the ones that most people are already familiar with are making yourself sick yes, or to throw up. Some people will um, risk their health by going into drugstores and getting, uh, which is sold by poison control, a syrup of Ipecac to make themselves sick because they, they can't do it. Yeah, on their own. Uh, I've seen patients, I'm currently working with someone now who abuses the equivalent of 200, 200, 200 laxatives a day. So, you know, you build up tolerance. For what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but most people, maybe a dozen laxatives a day. Um, how about running? How about, you know, having to run 10 or 15 miles a day to offset uh, the caloric consequences of binge eating? Um, I could go on with the list. That is Incentory behaviors, restricting. Um, getting to the point where you become what's called orthorexic, where you convince yourself you want to eat healthy and, and you um, only uh, limit yourself to organic foods, but then you limit yourself to certain organic foods and you get people who are anorexic that will only eat a mustard seed or they'll only eat a tomato. Um, so what becomes uh, 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 appropriate exercise or appropriate healthy eating becomes pathological. Uh, so it's you know, some extremities to some of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, I could say the same for some people that become fanatical about religion and they rationalize their extremist views to the point where they can rationalize killing or they can rationalize just about any behavior um, because they become not evangelical, they become fanatical. And, and so anything that is possibly seemingly healthy or what we call egocentric in a value system that goes along with it, you can become addictive uh, uh, or addicted to it and push it to a pathological degree. Exercise, eating, um, religion, work, love, sex, anything. Anything really. Yeah, yeah. You know, compulsivity is part of addiction. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, when you, when you just spoke about the um the persons who smoke who 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 instead of smoking they chew the gum to lose weight, I'm like, man, I've never heard about that before. Well, I there are more, but I I don't feel you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need more patience. I thought just went through my head, but I don't, let me not let me not even go there. That's <laughs> oh it. <laughs> don't go there. <sighs> oh my goodness. How about how about tapeworms? 
Hepworth. Uh, all right, I won't go any more than that. You know what? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, Lord. What are some of the treatments? You know, there's a lot of controversy with treatment, but really one one size doesn't fit all. So you really have to somewhat individualize it. Let me let me give you a medical parallel. Mm-hmm. Breast cancer for women and prostate cancer for men. Okay. There are many treatments that you have to decide on if you're a professional for someone who has breast cancer. Do you do a lumpectomy? Or do you do a total, uh, uh, you know, uh, surgery, radical mastectomy? Do you do chemotherapy? Do you do radiation therapy? Do you do hormone therapy? Do you do all three? And all of that depends on the severity of the cancer, the type of cell the cancer is, uh, the age of the patient, and you get what I'm saying. Right. And, And similar to that, when a man has prostate cancer, it can range everything from just watchful waiting to doing, you know, surgery to doing radiation or planting seeds um, and so on and so forth. Well, with eating disorders, it depends on the type of eating disorder. But the commonality, is, you know, that's a little different is it, it tends to be best to do residential treatment where you have someone who knows what they're doing prescribe a food plan. For instance, when I talked about food addiction, when you take a history of someone, if they're food addicted, they need to stay away from high glycemic or high processed foods. So you keep them with very limited or eliminate sugar, white flour, and highly processed foods. You don't put them on a diet per se. You put them on a food plan that's low glycemic, like you would for a diabetic. If someone's anorectic and they're just restricting and, you know, they have like very limited foods that they feel safe with, you try to expand what they're eating and you take a little different tact. But you're prescribing a food plan in a controlled, structured environment where you're helping support and structure their eating. Because the difference between an eating disorder and prostate or or breast cancer is you're doing something to a patient, but here you're doing something with a patient. Okay. So you need their cooperation. So it's a little bit different, but the, excuse the pun, the menu of treatment or the treatment plan needs to fit the patient rather than trying to use a cookie cutter um, uh-huh. approach. Yes, I get that. So in essence, helping them helping them by showing how to do things, having the food plan, etc., helps more than counseling, sitting down and just talking to them about it. Well, yeah, talk therapies usually are falling short. Okay. And, you know, um, I won't go into a long dissertation about this, but, you know, if you go back uh, to the history of psychiatry and therapy and all of that good stuff, um, you know, uh, it started out with the idea of repressed, Uh, impulses and memories and unconscious stuff. And, you know, you want to sleep with your mother and your Oedipal. And I remember being in school hearing about that. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't visit my grandparents for six months. Anyway, uh, the point being that, um, yes, I knew you would get it. It was slow, but I knew you'd get it. So it became cognitive behavioral and so on and so forth. The problem is 
that um, uh, talk therapy is helpful with marital counseling, anxiety disorders, uh, combined with medication for depression. But with eating disorders, it's about teaching someone how to fish rather than feeding them a fish. So the more you're able to uh, transition people from very structured food plans and eating experiences to their going grocery shopping with a dietitian, to their preparing their own meals and getting out of the nest, which would be treatment and flying on their own, that's really the, the best uh, approach, in my opinion, and experience to helping someone with an eating disorder. You could take an alcoholic, for instance, and lock them in a, in, in a, uh, a unit where they have no chance of drinking alcohol, and they'll stay sober for a month. And as soon as they get out, they have no idea how to handle sobriety right. because they have no experiences. Right. And, and with, um, with eating disorders, you don't want to lock someone up long term. You want to provide structure and, and some restrictive environment that's more su- supportive than restrictive. But you want to transition them to have experiences that approach what they're going to need to do when they leave uh, treatment. Yes. And, and so their last day in, in that environment and the next day when they transition should be seamless. Yes, I agree with that. So that's, that's you know, our, our treatment program does that. I'm sad to say that most treatment programs do not do that um, uh, because it's, it's inconvenient. It's very hard to do. So yeah, persons well, are not prepared to come out then? Yeah, I mean, look, you have insurance and you have economics. So uh, with managed care in this country, et cetera, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to cast a political statement here. If you only have four to six weeks to work with someone that's had a 20 or 30 year addiction, you're not going to cure them. Yes. And you're not going to uh, make more than a temporary impact if you're just locking them up somewhere and not having them have experiences and trials and tribulations where you have a support network and a net that they're working under when they take two steps forward and then take one back, which is how they progress. So you really have to engineer this for long-term uh, uh, treatment off and on. It's a lifelong uh, disease. It's not a curable one. It's one you can put in remission, just like uh, you would for breast cancer right. forms of uh, prostate cancer. And unfortunately, a lot of my peers talk in terms of cure when they should be talking realistically in terms of remission. Yes. Alcoholics are, are cucumbers that became pickles, and they're never going to be a cucumber again. So you can't teach an alcoholic how to moderately drink, in my opinion. Yeah, and, I agree with that. It's, it's a lifelong condition that, you know, if an alcoholic takes a drink and starts drinking 20 years after they've been sober, they will go back and worse than they were before they, you know, put down mm-hmm. the alcohol. Mm-hmm. It is the same for addictions, and I believe it's the same for eating disorders. Yes, I agree with that statement. How can family members support persons dealing with these disorders? Well, that's a tricky question. Um, there is no book that tells you how to be a parent, and there's no book to my satisfaction that tells you how to be the perfect, you know, uh, support. Right. The best thing to do um, are some of the principles that existed with Al-Anon for alcoholics, being a family member of an alcoholic. 
which is to allow the responsibility and ownership for recovery and continued recovery to be on the patient. So yeah. not being the food police, um, not, you know, um, uh, constantly crossing boundaries and try to, this is the key word, control um, the person with the eating disorder in terms of their binging, purging, restricting, or whatever, but also creating boundaries where you're not going to pay the consequences for their addiction. So if someone's binging and they empty out your refrigerator, they're responsible for replacing the food, for instance. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, just like if someone's an alcoholic and they decided to get drunk and they wrecked the car, they're responsible for fixing the car, so to speak. So, so there are principles of detachment and principles that, um, that would apply to this that can be garnered from Al-Anon literature um, uh, that you can find uh, alongside or in the vicinity of where there are AA meetings. And uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a strong advocate for 12-step programs that also incorporate, this could be another podcast, about past, uh, a spiritual component to recovery. Not religious, but spiritual. Right, right, right. It's almost like tough love. Like what? That's tough love. In terms it, it of, is. It's a very yeah. similar principle. It's it, it's a very, very similar principle. It means not enabling someone. It means I love you, but that doesn't mean I approve of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm hearing you, and I'm seeing the tough love that we ought to do, but I, I haven't seen... I have not seen for myself persons actually showing that because if you know, the, the, the thinking is if we see someone hurting themselves yeah, to stop them. Sure. Absolutely. And I'm not saying if you have someone that's 16 or 18 or 20, that you shouldn't exert your, your power or influence as a parent and say, look, this is deal or no deal. You're going to treatment or this is deal or no deal. You're going to go see someone professionally. Uh, I'm not saying not to do that, but there are some people we don't have control over. So if you're in a marriage where someone's drinking alcoholically, you know, you can you can draw a line in the sand and say, you know, if you're not going to get some help, we're not staying together. Right. So, you know, each person is a little bit different, but I am not saying, uh, you know, to not intervene in any way. What I am saying is that you have to take care of yourself as well as the person that has the disorder. I wish, I wish, yeah, I'm just going to say I agree with that and leave it. <laughs> I agree with that. So, Dr. Lerner, where is it that we can find you? Oh, um, uh, well, when I'm not hiding from my wife <laughs> or my dog or my patients or my staff, um, uh, <laughs> No, I I, I, uh, <laughs> I uh, have a treatment center that's residential as well as telehealth okay. now because of COVID. Um, so we do outpatient, day treatment, and residential for eating disorders. We're in South Florida. Um, I don't want this to be an advertisement, but if you look at... Go right ahead. Well, no. If you look at our website... Mm -hmm. Milestones, M-I-L-E-S-T-O-N-E-S -E program, it's all one word, dot org. Mm -hmm. You can also see uh, a place to ask for a free book. It's a uh, an e-book 
but if you give us an address, we'll send you a hard copy. It's a book that I wrote about what we've been talking about. It's free. And, and if you know someone that has an eating disorder, as I described, that's not responding to, to you know, lower levels of care or lower, you know, uh, uh, means of, in, uh, of treatment, by all means, see if, you know, they can call us and we'll try and help them. Okay. Uh, we only take people that are uh, 18 and older, but also take people that convince us that they want help. So we don't take people that are being coerced, so to speak, uh, and I get you, I get you, I get you. because, you know, we want people to come that want to get better because it, it has a bad influence on the community of patients. If someone is going to hide or be deceitful and say, I'm going because my wife threatened me or my husband threatened me or my mom threatened me. And then they come here and they're doing their eating disorder or their addiction, you know, um, uh, deceitfully because they had no intention of getting better. Okay. Okay. It's wasting your time, really. Yeah, we're here for people that want it, not just everybody that needs it. That is something. That yeah. is something. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, because sometimes some people don't think that they need it when they really do, but they have to. They have to first look in themselves and say, "I need the treatment." Right. That's, That's exactly right. right. And so sometimes people have to hit what we call a bottom. Hit rock bottom. Right. Yep. The, the phrase, as painful as it may be, that is borrowed from some of the literature on addictions is is experiencing pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, which to me means that you've tried everything you can think of, but the last thing you want to do is get help. Yeah. Because you think you should be able to do it by yourself. Yeah. And most of the time, the last thing that you think you want to do is the thing that you have to do. That's it. Yeah, that's something. Thank you so much, Dr. Lerner. Sure. This was fun. Yeah. <laughs> this was fun. I do this all the time, and I, I love doing it because I find it very reinforcing. You know, if, if you want to learn something, teach it. Yes. And so every time I do one of these, I kind of review my notes and look over my patient notes and all of this other stuff. And I've been doing this for a long time and it's endless. I, 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 I still have a lot to learn. Yes. And I'm learning still because I was taking notes while you were talking. And after being confused, you went and you dissected stuff. So, I mean, I feel better about the information that I've gotten. Yeah. And get the book. It's free. and, and I'm going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. I do, um, uh, there's some stuff in the book about relationships, about, you know, what you do, uh, about codependency, having someone uh, that that has is suffering and how do you help, when do you control, not control, uh, support groups, uh, like 12-step meetings, um, and also the, uh, the medical aspects of this that go beyond what we were talking about. Right. So it's, it's a good book. It's written for people that treat this, but it's also written for people that, um, uh, in plain language, that just want to understand it without the, all the fancy language. Understood. Understood. Sounds good to me. Yeah. yeah. Good. The price is right. Price is right. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Sure. I'm definitely looking to have you on the podcast again. Sure. To be honest. <laughs> yeah. And I want to thank my listeners for continuing to listen to the Unfiltered by Jade. And we'll be back next week, Tuesday. Thank you. Bam, 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 b